The views and opinions expressed on this show are those of the sponsor, Gross & Schuster. All right. Good morning, News Radio 92.3. It's the Pensacola Expert Panel. I am your co-host for this segment, Jake Walker, and I have on the phone joining me this morning, Terrence A. Gross. How you doing this morning, Terrence? Uh, it could be better. That's why I'm on the phone. So I got a little bit of uh, the crud and my voice is a bit scratchy, but I wanted to at least uh, keep this uh, program going and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I have some things to talk about. So most people know that I'm a personal injury lawyer. Yes, I've been here for 44 years and got my three sons with me and five offices throughout the panhandle. But lately I've just been slowly trying to go through the constitutional amendments you know, uh, select ones. And we talked about the First Amendment. We talked about the Second. We talked about the Fourth. <laughs> and now, I, I, excuse me, I'd like to talk about the uh, Sixth Amendment. So um, it's probably labeled right to counsel. It, it's more than that. But that's what it's most famously known as, you know, maybe you have a right counsel and, and, and so forth, but um, it also talks about a speedy trial, uh, the right to uh, confront the witnesses against you, and so forth. So let's get into the speedy trial thing, because I will tell you that even though I'm a personal injury lawyer, uh, my first five years out of law school, I probably did 80% criminal defense. So I represented criminals, mostly uh, drunken drivers and uh, drug possessors or drug dealers or, or whatever, but it, it's a smattering of uh, criminal cases. I never handled a, uh, a, a death case, a murder case, thank goodness. But uh, anyway, so I did a lot. got very knowledgeable in that area. So when I used to do a DUIs, for instance, so first of all, you have to understand speedy trial. Well, it's pretty hard and fast. And if you think about it, Back in the old days, maybe in England, you could arrest somebody, throw them in prison, accused of doing whatever, and they may languish in prison for a year or two before ever the charges were brought or going to trial, and what they found innocent. They'd have languished away for a year or two, and so we decided when we developed the Constitution, Thomas Jefferson and Madison, that they, that we were going to fix that. And they did with the speedy trial rule. Now, you know, states can also impose their own speedy trial rules as well as, as to what is speedy, because it just says speedy. It doesn't define what speedy is. And so in Florida, uh, a defendant must be brought to trial within 90 days of an arrest unless the defendant waives his right to speedy trial, which I'm going to get to. And for most felonies, it's it's 180 days. <clears throat> so back in the day, the DUI docket became very, very crowded. And when I first got out, most lawyers didn't fight the DUIs. It, was, you know, it just wasn't really done. They tried to plea bargain or, or whatever, and I started fighting these things. And I learned early on, that if I didn't waive a speedy trial, because normally at the arraignment, the average attorney would waive speedy trial and the case would be set 
down the road at whatever convenient time to his schedule or the judges, <clears throat> what I would do was not wait speedy trial, which means the prosecutor had to, he had to get a trial judge's calendar, which was already filled. And, you know, of course, the, the prosecutors weren't real happy with me. The judges weren't real happy with me. But my job was not to make friends. My job was to, you know, represent my client to the hilt. Right. Which often meant that you had to, you had to, you had to jump in there mm. and be prepared for a jury trial. What about a jury trial? Depositions of the officers and of the uh, toxilizer operator and all these things you had to do all within 90 days to get it to trial. And it was crazy. I, they, I they did. Uh, I had to be at the Milton Courthouse on Monday for uh, jury duty. So I saw the process firsthand and how, I mean, there were over 200 of us in a room waiting for judges, you know, to pick their juries. And there's, there's a lot that goes on. So I can understand uh, just seeing it from that viewpoint, how much goes into this and how much time is needed. And so to be overloaded and sometimes by doing that, maybe I would get a deal by putting more pressure on them, especially if the case was a borderline case, they'd be mm-hmm. more apt to drop the charges or whatever because mm-hmm. they're just in the manpower trying to get it to trial within this 90 days because the law is very severe. If, I, if you don't waive speedy trial and the case doesn't go to trial within 90 days, the case is thrown out of court. It's thrown out of court. That's, that's the remedy. It's a strong remedy and for, for felonies, you know, 180 days. And a half a year sounds like a long time, but again, going over witnesses and subpoenas and depositions and motions and, and, and whatever, it's not an easy thing. So the speedy trial, I learned very quickly that the speedy trial rule had teeth in it, had teeth. And so if the person, but I will tell you that just as a practice, Probably 95% of all criminal defense lawyers, whether that be private or public defender, probably waive speedy trial because they don't have the time to gear up a case and be ready in 90 days. It puts a lot of pressure on everybody, including the defense lawyer. So the average defense lawyer is going to want to waive it and give it more time and and whatever. But I, I kind of didn't do that for, on some select cases, knowing that, uh, you know, by putting that pressure on them, maybe I would get a a great deal at some point. So that's the speedy trial rule. And, and again, some people can't make bail. So, you know, a lot of people, they get arrested and the bail set at $5,000. Let's talk about bail so you understand how bail works. So if the bail was set at $5,000, you either come up with $5,000 to, to, to get out or you go to a bail bondsman. And you give them a non-refundable 500, 10% usually, and the bail bonds will make that 10%. And, and of course, the bail bonds is going to make sure you attend your court dates because if you don't, the, the bail bondsman has to pay back the 5000 So, you know, so that, that that's what that's all about. But, but some people can't make bail, so if you get charged with a serious felony and some judge sets the bail at 200000 the average show can't not only can't come up at two hundred thousand, they can't come up with a ten percent to twenty thousand. And every now and then I would see a case where uh, grandma would put up her house, which was very sad really, uh, as collateral to, mm-hmm. to get the 
whoever out of court, uh, you know, out of out on bail. So again, if you can't make bail, then you're in jail, and, and you're supposed to be innocent until you're proven guilty. So that that that's one of the definitely the icons or, or an integral part of the Sixth Amendment. If you now have, we got the right to counsel. Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was just going to let everybody know if they if they have questions, let us know. Text or call in four three seven sixteen twenty. This is News Radio ninety two three, informative, local, dependable. It's the Pensacola Expert Panel. I'm here talking with Terrence A. Gross, who's joining us on the phone. Uh, like I said, if you have questions, four three seven sixteen twenty. So, so the other other part of the thing is the uh, right to counsel. So when I was a young I worked at the public defender's office. The arraignments, you know, and this was pretty much like you saw the that cattle call. They, we'd go in there, and at 9 o'clock, everybody gets the same court date. So everybody thinks, oh, that's my individual court date. Now, if you've been arrested, and they give you a 9 o'clock arraignment on Monday, well, it's usually, a, like, it's a misdemeanor. It's in the courtroom uh, uh, 301 in uh, Escambia County and 401 for felonies in Escambia County. You go in there at nine o'clock, and it's you and maybe a hundred other people. I mean, and some have lawyers, some don't. And then if a person comes up and they go, "Well, I, I can't afford a lawyer," then the judge will say, "Okay, sir, we're going to take a break from your case. See that door? Go out that door with the public defender. He'll interview you. And then about twenty minutes later, the public defender actually has a chance to talk to him. He pops up and he goes, "Judge." This guy doesn't work and blah, blah, blah. Or if he has a job, he only makes minimum wage. He's got two children and, and, and no assets. And, and, and invariably, in most instances, the, the judge will appoint the public defender's office. So it's for the indigent. It could be either the non-working people or what we call the working poor. You, you can still qualify for the public defender if you're what we call the working poor. So anyway, you're appointed, and then you get the public defender's office and, and so forth, and the other people have to have to retain their own lawyers. Very few people defend themselves. That's not a good idea. So, yeah, so you have a right to counsel. So you get the right to counsel. So if you stop and think about it, I always think about this, all these complex murder cases like Ted Bundy. If you look at Ted Bundy, all the effort and expense, but think about this. Even though he did represent himself, they still had a court-appointed lawyer sitting next to him, you know, assistant represent himself. In other words, the state of Florida paid for the judge. That's who's paying for the judge. The state of Florida pays for the prosecutor. And the state of Florida pays for the profit defender. Mm. So it, it just, it, I always find that just very interesting. You know, so all, it, 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 and you think about all the expenses spent on these major felonies, and it has to be done. I mean, you just can't say it's too expensive. We're not going to prosecute these people. You got to do it, and it's, it's at a great deal of expense. Mm-hmm. What do you What do you say about so, the uh, the stigma about public defenders? You know, you always see that on television and in shows like that. You know, they always think, "Oh, I'm getting the public defender. That's not as good." What do you think about that stigma? Well, there's some truth to it, and and, and not. I mean, when I was there. I was gun ho. I was gun ho. I I was so elated mm-hmm. <laughs> to be out <laughs> and, and and have the, the courtroom. I was 
is all new to me, and I, I was just very industrious. Um, and actually, I wasn't officially a public defender. I was actually a public defender intern. Uh, so I uh, at my uh, one semester of law school, but they came in and you were like grandfathered in. You're allowed to you practice law under this statute with supervision. I liked only, although I wasn't supervised much. But I actually had four jury trials. I had four jury trials, four not guilty verdicts. So I was very proud of that. Wow. Um, I, I got my sons. When my sons graduated law school, my two oldest sons, I made them uh, – go to the public defenders for a year or two to, for a lot of reasons. Number one, really to get trial experience because when you're at the public defenders, you're in court every day. Every day, multiple hearings, some jury trials, a lot of motions, you know, cattle calls, but you're before judges. You learn how to argue before judges and, and appear and, and just the jury trial. Because well, once you go into personal injury, you know, 80% of personal injury cases settle without litigation, which means there is no judge. And the ones you sue on, a lot of times you, you do depositions. The lawyers do things independently, but rarely is a judge even involved in that until you can't settle. And then, then if you get the trial date, then the judge. That's only maybe 5% of the cases where you're really gearing up towards trial. So you get a lot more courtroom experience and trial experience in the public defenders. But to answer your question, I think um, when I was there, you, you had all walks of life. You had some kind of lazy public defenders, truthfully, and you had some great ones. I, I, I don't mind mentioning one by name. One of the best public defenders I saw there was Terry Terrell. And he did a lot of the death penalties. He did the hard cases. And he was just a workaholic. He was just relentless and academic. He was a tremendous lawyer and then later became a judge and was a judge for quite some time until he retired a couple of years ago. Uh, but so, there, you know, just because, so I think it just depends. You just don't get your pick of a lawyer. The problem is the public defender, you get whoever. And you could get some young guy that is good or an old guy that's bad or vice versa or whatever. It's just luck of the draw. You don't, you don't get to choose your lawyer. Right. You just get whoever they give you. And, and they also have big caseloads. The other thing, when I was in private practice with my criminal caseload, it was about 30 cases. I would have 30 criminal cases going, which is a big caseload, really, for a private lawyer. And a public defender may have 150 cases. So just imagine trying to know everybody's day. I remember when I was interning in, in, in Canada, you meet these people one time or whatever, and then you're like outside the court, uh, Mr. Smith, and you raise your hand trying to, <laughs> you know, because you're not even sure who your client is. And then, and then you quickly go to the corner and talk to them, okay, I got you a plea bargain. You know the file. I mean, you look at the file. You may not have met the person. You may have talked to them on the phone. And then also you're trying to meet them for the first time outside the courtroom and say, if you plead guilty to this, they're going to drop these two charges. They're going to put you on probation, no jail time, and, and you're just trying to get them a deal. And then if they agree to it, then you go in and play, play them out. So it, it, it just it, the volume of the public defender's office is just crazy. Um, so so the, that's where they maybe get the bad rap because it's just so hard. And they're understaffed. They're always understaffed. You know, and, and I don't think they get the budget that they that the prosecutor's office gets. There may be a bias with the legislature 
that for some reason, you know, the uh, prosecutors have more resources than the public defenders. Mm. Anyway, so you got in a right to confront your witnesses. So you can't be convicted by hearsay, so you have a right. The right to confront witnesses simply means the right to cross-examine. And there's an old adage that cross-examination is the, uh, is the ultimate way of getting to the truth, through cross-examination. So you have a right to cross-examine. Uh, of course you do. Uh, they made a rule change when I first came out. I mean, this is like the uh, late 70s, early 80s. You could take depositions in misdemeanors and felonies. Then it was just too costly, and they made a legislative change in the mid-'80s saying, no, you can only take automatically depositions on felony cases, not misdemeanors, unless the judge authorized that the case was unusual enough that you could take the deposition. So what I used to do, I finally got motions together, and I said, judge, every DUI is complex. We're talking about blood extrapolations. We're talking about you know, expert testimony. Because you can't convict someone of DUI that's blown to a, a breath machine without expert testimony. So you're bringing in an expert, and I should have a right to cross-examine, and they live let me take the deposition. So, and also, you, you know, the county judges probably feel that maybe they're a little, you know, shunned to look down on because they're not circuit judges. And I used to say, Judge, these DUI cases that you're handling, that you're listening to, are way way more complex than a lot of felonies. So some guy comes to the bar and threatens to stab somebody with a knife, the felony, the factually, the expert, maybe a couple eyewitnesses, yes, I saw he had a knife, yes, he tried to stab him, and whatever, it's just one of those things, and nothing real technical about it. But the DUI defense that I specialized in was very, very uh, Intricate, you had to know the machines. There was something called a smoke detector that they were having problems with. What if the person burped? What if, you know, sometimes, like, what if you ate steak about three three um, hours ago, and, you, and then you had that burp where you get that fresh taste of steak in the mouth like you just took a bite? Well, maybe a burp could throw off the breath machine. And, and, and in fact, there's literature saying that. In fact, the officers are instructed, if you see a person burp, if you see him burp, then you got to wait another five minutes before you administer a breath machine. <laughs> wow, I've never heard that. Wow. Oh, yeah, so very technical stuff. And then they had something called a horizontal nystagmus test. So, so I don't know if anybody's ever been stuffed for DUI, but a lot of officers are trained. They put a pin in front of your eyes. They have you hold your head straight. You can't turn your head. And they take. They want you to follow the pin of your eyes. And if you have nystagmus, which is a, they say, is a, a, a indicator of intoxication, your eye will start jumping at, at certain angles at 45 degrees. But but see, I used to tear them up on that because I I, I went to literature and got into all kinds of ocular uh, books from my doctors and stuff that some people have nystagmus. Some people walk around. They have corrective lenses because they have permanent nystagmus. Mm. So, I mean, just so it, it, it was just very technical. And the reason I started talking about this is I always took depositions if I was going to trial on a DUI case. Always, always, always. And, uh, it, it really uh, benefited me quite well. Wow. And, uh, and I also found out, I found out early 
that the officers for a deposition came in unprepared. The prosecutor's busy. They come in and you can zing, zing, zing. And then by the time you go into trial, now the prosecutor's trying to prepare them. But, but it's too late because you already got the record. You already got that deposition. And if they deviate, if they start saying something in the courtroom that is different than their deposition, then I can zing them. So again, getting back to the Sixth Amendment, the right to confront witnesses. That's what it's all about, the right to confront the witnesses. You can't just send in an affidavit. You can't uh, have hearsay. You can't be convicted. Cops can't say, well, the eyewitness that was at the scene said that this guy was drunk as could be. Well, where's the eyewitness? I don't know. Well, that's not coming in there. A judge on the hearsay rule is not going to allow that testimony to come in mm-hmm. because it's, it's hearsay, right. and you've lost the right to confront the actual witness. Yeah, just imagine what it would be like without the Sixth Amendment. I mean, the, it having any exposure to the criminal justice system would just be a complete and total nightmare if we didn't have the Sixth Amendment. Well, most countries don't, and, mm. and that's why we see, even though I'm a big fan of Israel, mm-hmm. but I do know that, that if they arrest a, a suspected terrorist, um, that suspected terrorist could sit indefinitely in a prison without being able to trial them. You know, there's always somebody. So there's always all these marvels at Guantanamo Bay. Because we knew we were holding these alleged bad guys. They probably were, but that they weren't brought to trial either. I'd say, well, wait a second. Where's the Sixth Amendment? Where, where is this thing? They've been Guantanamo Bay. Maybe the exception. I don't know, but I always marveled at that. Mm-hmm. Um, because even though whatever they've done is highness, everybody, you, you can't just pick and choose who gets to sit in jail or not. I mean, so everybody should have a speedy trial. Everybody should, you know, um, have a right to counsel um, and, and so forth. And that's how Miranda came about because then, you know, this is case law. So then you, then you get the Constitution, which is always short, and then you get these case laws. And so in the 1960s, there was a fellow named Miranda. And he was obviously Hispanic and maybe not too worldly. And um, anyway, so they got a confession out of him that the Supreme Court ruled they should have told him that he had the right to remain silent, that he had a right to counsel, blah, blah, blah. And that's what we got. Yes, yeah, so nowadays, it's done routinely. All the officers have the little card. They just read it. They don't paraphrase all. They read it. They have it in their wallets or something. Right. And, and if they're going to arrest you, take your statement. Mm-hmm. They got to read it. You have read the register. Right. All right. We're coming up on the break here. This time goes by really quick. Thank you for being with me today. I've been getting texts in. Everybody said that uh, it was a really great, informative show today, especially from, you know, the plight of a person who doesn't have a lot of money and they have to face legal trouble. Thank you so much, Terrence, for being here today. You're listening to News Radio 92.3 WNRP Golf Breeze, Milton, Pensacola.